Hello and welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Balance and Falls Special Interest Group podcast series. Our aims are to share Balance and Falls research and programs with our members and through this to increase networking, collaborations, and knowledge translation. This is in step with our aims, which are first, to improve fall risk identification, and second, to reduce preventable falls in people with neurologic impairments. My name is Julie Schwartfegger. I am the Balance and Falls SIG Chair, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Today's podcast is featuring a discussion with James Finley, the Director of the Locomotor Control Lab at the University of Southern California, who is going to discuss some of his background, including mentors that led to his current research, and highlights of some of the research that incorporates people with neurologic impairments. Uh, with that, I do want to just go through a little bit of your um, titles just to give our audience uh, a little bit of your background. So James is an assistant professor. He's also the director of the Locomotor Control Lab. He's the co-director of the U University of Southern California Smart VR Center in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy, Department of Biomedical Engineering, Neuroscience Graduate Program, at the University of Southern California. That is quite a lot of hats that you wear, James. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, there are. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today, James. And I, uh, when I met James, I'll give our audience a little background, was at the American Society of Neurorehabilitation where he played a, a pretty large role with a, a pretty uh, broad section of researchers from different disciplines and uh, clinical backgrounds as well as research backgrounds. And that's where the discussion led to uh, this invite where I can share his research and his background with our, our members as well as, as just distribute this as widely as is, is possible. Um, but your background is not physical therapy and yet I know you do have physical therapists in your lab. So I love broadening the conversation in this way as well. Yeah. So James, I'd like to start by having you talk a little bit about your mentors and the path that led you to your current research and multiple roles at the University of Southern California. All right, yeah, happy to do so. And um, thank you for the invitation. So um, as you mentioned, my background, my, my I guess formal training is primarily in engineering. And so I think for some people, it may seem odd that uh, you have an engineer in a physical therapy department. But I think as we maybe discussed a little bit when we, when we um, you know, first met, um, my interest in human movement actually paralleled my original interest as a high school student in um, understanding performance in sort of like automotive uh, vehicles. So um, throughout my undergrad career, I was really interested in just taking a, a pre-existing, looking at a pre-existing system like a car, trying to understand how it works and how you can improve performance. Um, during this time, I had the fortune of doing an internship at a medical device company, uh, Medtronic. And that's where I first saw that I could apply engineering principles to health. That was actually completely foreign to me at the time. Um, fast forward a few years, I decided to, I wanted to teach initially, um, and that was part of the motivation for pursuing a PhD. And um, during this time, I worked 
at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, where I was in a, um, a I guess, a division that was known as the Sensory Motor Performance Program, but it consisted of a number of faculty, many of them engineers, um, who were looking at ways to use things like uh, robotics or signal processing to understand human behavior and ultimately um, improve quality of life for different patient populations. So um, as just as a first year grad student, that was the first experience I had working with people post-stroke and I've been doing that um, ever since, so past, I guess 16 years. Um, from there, as I sort of moved through my graduate work, um, while I initially started with an interest in more of the engineering side of things, maybe devices, I gradually um, became more and more, I guess, en engrossed in understanding the physiology. So both, um, you know, physiology of, of unimpaired or in individuals, as well as what we might call neuropathophysiology. And um, long story short, um, I continued to pursue that route. I did a postdoc in Baltimore with uh, Amy Bastian studying human locomotion, again, continuing work in healthy individuals or unimpaired individuals and people post-stroke. And um, I've been able to take that engineering training um, along with the physiology neuroscience um, that I've had along the way. And that's um, how I've sort of structured my lab here at USC. So we still do work that spans um, everything from basic um, sort of motor control, neurophysiology, to exercise physiology all the way through thinking about uh, rehab interventions. Well, that's, that's quite a wonderful trajectory that you just outlined. Now, going back to first year of engineering school, you mentioned the RIC Sensory Motor Lab. Um, and I know you said there's engineers in that lab, that makes sense. Um, but what other roles and disciplines, uh, what was the, the, the team comprised oh. of? Yeah, so um, in my master's project, I was working very closely with one of the physical therapists in our, um, at RIC, and, then, and I know she's still in Chicago. But um, so when we would bring people, we were looking at how, essentially how, if you have a stroke, which of course damages um, typically supraspinal pathways, um, that actually has an effect downstream. So you have um, changes in how your spinal cord processes um, sensory information. So we were studying that in the lower extremities, but I was working very closely with one of the, uh, the PTs in, at RIC um, for, for that project. But more broadly, so the sensory motor performance program was actually, I think of it as a department sort of within RIC at the time. And um, there were, I don't know, 15 different labs. So there was a huge group of people. Um, and yeah, so we had, you know, physical therapists who were working in the labs, PTs who were faculty, engineers who were faculty, grad students. Um, it was a really diverse setting. And I think that was one of the reasons why I am fairly comfortable now, well, actually extremely comfortable now um, interacting with people on either side of the quote-unquote aisle. Yeah. And in addition to PTs, there probably were other clinical roles. Were there like physicians and nurses and uh, not 
there were occasionally there were there were physicians who would be on that floor, but we were not embedded. So we had two floors that were primarily research. So there were no you know beds on those floors. So it was in some sense um, it was separate from where people were being treated. Very nice. So it really was PT and engineering were was the primary team working on the research. Yes, yes. Very nice. And then the um, Baltimore, talk a little bit about Amy Bastian's lab where you were at for your postdoc. Yeah, so um, when I was there, it's been about three years there as a postdoc. And um, so I think as many of the listeners will know, so um, Amy is a PT trained or PT PhD. Um, and so I was able, my Eric Groh, my PhD advisor was an engineer, my postdoctoral advisor was a neuroscientist and physical therapist. So that, again, I think tells you pretty much all you need to know about how I um, look at problems in motor control. So in, while I was in Baltimore, one of the major focus areas, um, I guess at Johns Hopkins, um, in, in the sort of human motor behavior uh, arena, is on motor learning and motor adaptation. So um, there did a number of studies to understand how people adapt to novel tasks. So a lot of the work looks at adaptation to walking on um, split belt treadmills, which are sort of this novel task that most people have never tried. So we can understand how people adjust their movements when they are um, dealing with one of these devices. And simultaneously, I was continuing again to do work with people post-stroke um, to understand, you know, if we change how someone walks post-stroke, um, well, at the, at the time, we were trying to understand factors that might influence the, the, the energy cost of walking post-stroke. Uh, and then okay. I'll continue with a lot of that work uh, here at USC. Very nice. Now that brings us up to uh, a, a good place to launch and talk about your current kind of multiple roles in your lab and the good work you're doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, so currently um, the lab that I direct, we, let's see, I think I have, so we, uh, maybe since we last spoke, uh, my first PhD student defended um, in December. Um, he's moving on to work at um, the, uh, the, I believe it was the biodesign group at Harvard um, with a group that does, that develops exoskeletons for post-stroke uh, rehab. Wow. Um, Congratulations. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So we um, I currently have four PhD students, one postdoctoral fellow, and Again, their backgrounds span engineering, physical therapy, and biomechanics. So um, I like to say that there are maybe three primary areas of study in the lab. In one area, which is understanding how changes in our walking pattern affect um, energy cost. We do that work both in healthy individuals and in, or, and in people post-stroke. Then we also are very interested in how we control balance um, during walking. So that's some of the work that I think that you and I have discussed before. Um, and uh, typically in, in almost all of our research, we like to do um, 
you know, sort of able-bodied uh, unimpaired controls. We work with different pathological populations like stroke or Parkinson's, and there's sort of a back and forth um, in each of these domains. And then lastly, uh, we've been doing a lot of work over the past five years or so using virtual reality as a way to understand uh, sensory motor processing during walking. So how do you use visual information about the body while you're walking? Um, but also we've been developing mobility training applications um, targeting people with PD, Parkinson's right now, but that work also has applications to uh, post-stroke rehab. Very nice, okay. So this is a very uh, thriving, busy lab. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think probably to, to have a, a linear flow to the conversation, I would love to hear about some of your publications on any one of those three primary trajectories that your lab works on, um, sticking with stroke. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can talk a little bit about the changes in walking patterns or walking pattern and energy costs, that's probably uh, a good place to start and then we'll follow that through to balance with walking and how that changes after stroke and some of the studies you've done there. Yeah. And then if we have time, I'd love to hear about the VR uh, research. Sure. So, um, yeah, so as I mentioned, some of the, the work that um, I have been doing, looking at energy, the energy cost of walking post-stroke, that the initial study in that work was done in Baltimore. Um, but a big, the bigger question, big question that we are trying to understand, and this encompasses both energy and balance, is you have someone who's had a stroke and you'd like, and they come to, let's say, um, a clinic um, for therapy. And, um, you know, different people may have different objectives, but one common objective that we see is people may want to have a more observationally normal walking pattern. And so a lot of our work um, try, seeks to understand, well, what are the potential benefits or costs associated with changing how someone is walking. So um, one of the ways that we do this is by, through use of what we might call biofeedback, where people walk on our treadmill, um, they look at a screen in front of them, and that screen tells them something, for instance, about how long their steps are on the right and left sides. And since people post-stroke um, frequently walk with asymmetric walking patterns. So they might take a short step and a long step. Um, one of the things that we like to understand, that we've been trying to understand is, well, what happens if you ask them to walk more symmetrically? So sort of try to move them toward what some might consider as a more um, op observationally normal pattern. And so for these studies, we, um, we, we will use, we have people wear a, um, a mask, that's connected to a metabolic cart. And so we can measure how much oxygen they're consuming, um, both at their self-selected pattern and when we modify their gait. So the um, you know, major take-home point from that work is that uh, the effects of modifying asymmetry are basically subject or participant specific. So um, for instance, if you have someone who is highly impaired, as measured by, let's say, the Fugelmeyer, and that person has an asymmetric walking pattern, 
um, when they, they try to walk more symmetrically, um, they may often increase metabolic costs. So you can think about that because they, they don't, um, they have, they're highly, the impairment is in some, might in some ways be preventing them from taking advantage of this more symmetric pattern. Conversely, you may have people who are not as highly impaired as measured by a Fugelmeyer, but they still walk with an, an asymmetric gait. For those individuals, um, we actually show that you can, in some cases, reduce the energy cost of walking by helping them to improve symmetry. So in other words, those, there's, there's a subset of the population that might have the capacity to walk more symmetrically and um, observe or experience energetic benefits from that, that process. That is fascinating. So would you, um, do you believe that there might be a, a downstream use of the Fugelmeyer to have a cutoff or something that might uh, direct treatment in one of those two ways to work on symmetry in some, but to let them be asymmetric in the other for energy conservation reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really, um, I wouldn't say necessarily likely, but it's a it's a definitely a possible direction. So um, when when we do these studies, typically we've been doing these in, in a single session, just seeing what, what we might call acute or immediate effects. The next step would be okay, what happens if you train people? Um, do you still see the same kind of dichotomy where for some people it's really helpful, other people? Um, they just always continue to walk with a higher cost and then go back to what they were doing. So I think that's one question is what happens when you do this in a longer term training? And then I think you are correct in that, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether under what conditions are sort of compensatory strategies maladaptive. Um, and it may, it may be that for some people, compensatory strategies are you know, as the sort of best you can do, or they sort of optimize themselves. Whereas for other people, you may be able to move them more towards something that is uh, in different ways, um, less costly, I would say. Very good. And yeah. the population of stroke survivors in that study, as best as you can recall, I know this is a little bit of a ways back, um, did they have a lot of uh, sensory and sensory integration components to their stroke impairments or? Yeah, that's, um, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to, to, to sort of look that up to say anything. And we can look that up in a journal, right? So that's published work with you and Amy Bastion. So this is, this is actually work um, from my lab here. So the uh -huh. first author is uh, Natalia Sanchez, who was a former postdoc in the lab. Oh, excellent. Okay. That was in um, NNR, I believe, in 2018. Very good. So, so let's move on then to the balance during walking mm -hmm. research that your lab is doing. Yeah, so um, along the same lines, you can imagine, well, maybe someone who has a stroke chooses, we would call this an implicit choice, right? They're maybe not consciously just making this decision, but they may walk with an asymmetric pattern because it feels safer, right? Um, you know, putting a lot of weight on the paretic limb, which may have, have limited motor function, and it may also 
have, uh, you, there may also be sensory impairments. That may be something that um, you, you sort of implicitly choose to shy away from. So um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to use what we might call quantitative biomechanical assessments of balance during walking to similarly understand how um, does a stroke affect your ability to recover from stumbles. So um, for these experiments, we use our treadmill and we, in some cases, accelerate one of the belts and that sim simulates a trip or a stumble. And we can look at what happens when those perturbations occur on either the paretic or non-paretic side. Similarly, we can do what we've described earlier with the energetic work and ask, well, if you have somebody walk with a more symmetric gait, um, how does that, does that have an effect on their ability to recover from I these see. perturbations? So that's a, a way that we can measure stability or in some fall risk in some ways. So um, in one of the um, recent studies that we are actually revising and nearing, nearing preparation for submission, um, we first wanted to make sure that these biomechanical measures um, have what we would refer to as concurrent validity, right? So we have a number of clinical assessments of balance and fall risk. So if these biomechanical measures um, are meaningful ways to capture fall risk, then we should see some relationship between them and clinical assessments. And so um, fortunately, that's what we did find. We used on the biomechanics side, something called whole body angular momentum, um, but it essentially captures how fast you are falling in either the forward backward direction or the medial lateral direction. So, you know, people who tend to fall more quickly during, you know, their normal gait cycle. In other words, they're sort of um, falling and catching themselves. That's how we might describe walking in general. But people who tend to have a higher momentum also have lower scores on um, clinical assessments of balance and fall risk. Okay. okay. So, so you might ask, well, why might, if we already have a measure, why do we need another measure? <laughs> and we think that the utility of these biomechanical measures is that um, we can capture them on a step-to-step -step basis. We can look at how they change when people are perturbed and they might be a more sensitive way to measure uh, changes in, in you know, balance over the course of, let's say, rehab. Very nice. And I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you um, looked at concurrent validity with clinical measures. Um, mm -hmm. I think I warned you ahead of time, I like to talk about core measures and the common data elements and, and research. Um, I'd like to hear which measures you chose. And mm -hmm. uh, I know there is a recently published core measure, uh, uh, core measures for neurologic populations that came out in, in the physical therapy neuro journal. Hmm. Um, I'm going to guess you probably got, got some of those in there and I just would love to hear if that's the case. Um, and, and if you could talk a little bit about how you go about choosing which measures you're going to use for your concurrent validity study. Yep. So this is um, some work that we did in uh, collaboration with one of our, well, one of 
one of our faculty, uh, Julie Tilson here at, uh, at USC. And so she um, was really instrumental in helping us define which measures um, would be the sort of best assessments of um, the construct that we're trying to capture, which is balance. So um, the two primary measures that we use for um, balance were the Berg balance scale and then the functional gait assessment. And um, we also typically, well, we always have a measure of impairment, which is our Fugelmeyer. Um, in addition to these, we, did, we always do things like the six minute walk test. Um, but the, the two major outcome measures for this study were the functional gait assessment and um, Berg balance. Both of which are in the core measures. And, and hearing that Julie Tilson is part of your decision making <laughs> team, I'm not surprised to hear that. That's great. Yeah, and um, yeah, so we, you know, we were, whenever you, I guess I'll speak for myself, <laughs> whenever you sort of set out to ask questions like, does this new measure capture something that is, um, you know, assessed well with functional gait assessment of the bird? Um, I always assume that we're not going to find anything <laughs> just because it's human behavior. But um, we, we actually found some what I would consider really strong results with, in terms of how strongly correlated these measures were. So that was really um, encouraging for us. That's exciting. And of course, the, the FGA and BBS um, in a typical clinic won't be instrumented in that mm -hmm. fine level of detail and, as you said, step-to-step -step measurement and variation. Mm -hmm. but those are just not feasible in a clinic and it's beyond mm -hmm. what we can do. So it's nice to have that correlation between the research measure that can be so exacting when needed and then what we'll be able to do out in, in, in the clinic and yeah. in the outpatient clinics and hospitals. Very interesting. So um, having, having talked a little bit about balance during walking and uh, measuring what did you call it? Whole body angular momentum? Did I yes. get that right? Um, are there any implications that or follow-up studies that you're working on that you can share with us? Sure. So, um, right. So what I, one of the studies I mentioned was that we are trying to understand if you change, well, actually this is the same study, but if you change um, someone's asymmetry, how does that affect momentum? So if we kind of follow the, the logical flow, um, the idea is that if momentum is a um, valid measure of dynamic balance and we change someone's gait and then that affects momentum and increases momentum, for example, that would imply that that change was not a good, that, that it actually helped, it impaired that person's balance. So, um, in general, that's what we found for this sample of uh, post-stroke individuals that when we, again, use our biofeedback approach to get them to reduce their step length asymmetry, they also tended to increase momentum. So um, that you know, may be another reason why even if people have the capacity to walk more symmetrically, they tend not to because it would require them to, to push the boundaries of their balance. Um, and again, just I like sort of always have to make this, this clear. And these are sort of single ex experiences. 
Um, but I think all of this work is, was necessary before justifying um, a, a longer training study, because now we can make some predictions about, well, you know, maybe, um, I think my uh, Jim Gordon, our, our department chair, talks about the, the investment principle. Um, this idea that maybe when you are first exposed to a new task or a new skill, you know, your performance declines, right? You, it's more costly, you feel unstable, but perhaps with more training, you could actually reach a place that's better than where you started. So those, um, you know, you have to be able to capture that trajectory of training to really understand um, the effects of these, these changes. Very nice, very nice. And then uh, the last part of your, uh, or the last of the big three areas of focus of your lab was mm -hmm. VR sensory motor processing and applications. And I think these are specific to PD, but obviously that's very relevant as well. I'd love to hear a little bit about those. Yeah, so this is some uh, work that I think there was sort of a spark of this work while I was a postdoc. And then through various interactions with a lot of our faculty and um, you know, students and so on here, this is something that we've been able to push forward um, pretty substantially, I think, over the last five years. So the, the big picture, um, and this holds not just for Parkinson's, but also stroke, is if you think about the challenges that people face in the real world, when they, the mobility-related challenges, um, aside from just sort of moving, transporting yourself from point A to B, we typically have to navigate around obstacles. So I'm just looking around my office, there's a desk and there are chairs. Um, if we go into, you know, to um, let's say a sporting event, there are crowds. And um, these types of challenges, I think, are, have actually been reported to be things that people really, um, things that cause barriers to, um, you know, getting out into the community. Um, and the, the, the challenge is that many of these things are difficult to precisely recreate in a sort of systematic way uh, in, a, in, a typical, in a typical clinic. So we have been looking at, at what we call low-cost virtual reality as a way to recreate some of the challenges that people might face in the real world in a, in a way that's safe. Um, you, there's no physical collisions, so that's why it's safe, but it's also why it's not the real world. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I've found, you know, most exciting is we have now, this is in collaboration with um, Beth Fisher, who's one of our faculty, Marantina Gossis, who's in cinematic arts, um, and another um, faculty member, Vigelis Limperitas, who's in the School of Engineering. So we have now developed a system that can be used while walking over ground. So now we can do things like turning, um, add secondary cognitive tasks. And um, we are, I think we have two more people to recruit and test, um, doing a feasibility assessment, uh, having a physical therapist and one of their patients with Parkinson's just go through three sessions with the system and provide feedback about um, perceived benefits, utility, and any barriers to, perceived barriers to use. 
And is this uh, one of the VR headset type of virtual reality? Yeah, so we, um, you know, with technology, one of the biggest challenges is that things change constantly. So the technology that was available when we wrote the grant um, changed dramatically between the time we submitted the grant and when we received funding. But it actually worked to our benefit um, because we're using an HTC Vive, which is the great thing about it is the system also has sensors that you can place on the feet or the torso, and uh, we can recreate a full body representation in VR. So even though you're wearing a headset, you see something that moves with your body. So there's a sense of ownership and um, you're fully immersed in the virtual world and people, you know, if you've never tried it, it sounds like it might be disorienting, but um, as soon as you put the headset on, people move as if it's natural because of the level of, um, of I guess, precision in the tracking and, and rendering and so on. I think more and more there's movies that spoof on that, right, of, of people enjoying their virtual reality and maybe even being in the same room but completely oblivious to one another unless they're in the same game. Yeah. Uh, my favorite is the, the, it's one of the Mr. Bean movies where he's on a, a mat with the VR goggles and he actually goes through an, a, a huge segment of fight scenes with people out in stores and on the street, but in his mind he's in a video game. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, the immersive ability is, is pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. And what happens when someone bumps something? So if they, if they do bump into something in the game. Yeah, so, the, um, so there are two things. One is you can walk, you can physically walk through anything, right? Because there's no, there are no physical barriers in the real world. Um, but the one really interesting thing is that when you see an obstacle, even though, you, even though you know you're in VR, you tend to avoid that obstacle just because it's programmed right into how you perform in your daily behavior. Um, it, it'd be, you know, if you put a, fit, a virtual wall in front of someone, I've not met anyone who will try to walk through that wall. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so it's just, it's just something that we're not wired to do. Um, but one of the things that we've been, we have a, a, a student team who we worked with that and they've developed um, what's called a sort of a haptic feedback um, for VR. Mm. So here when pe we have people walking over virtual, stepping over virtual obstacles, and whenever there was a collision, this, there was a little buzzer on the foot that would buzz to let you know that you, there was a collision. Oh, that's brilliant. So these are ways technologically, technological, um, solutions that can help increase what's called immersion and um, give you a sense of that the, the virtual obstacle virtual objects have a physical property to them got it and the um, the Parkinson's population I, I always like to ask about the population that you're studying um, if you have their UPDRS or their Honan yar stage like what what are the give me a little bit of background of the participants for this study yeah so um the answer is yes that we do so we this is again i think you know i couldn't do this work without being in a pt department um so i always work closely with my 
um, PT collaborators because I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert in, um, you know, Parkinson staging, let's say, for instance. Um, so we do collect UPERS and holding staging. Um, they're, they, they're typically mild to moderate. So they are, you know, people who are ambulatory, who don't require, you know, any assistance moving through the world. Um, we have not, we, we try not to recruit people who are freezing just because that is a, okay. an additional added complexity. Um, that means there are people, of course, who know more, <laughs> more than I do in this no, area. No, that's, that's really helpful. That just gives yeah. me a profile of, of who's in the study um, yeah. already and with those three things. Yeah, and, and it's, um, we're, we're building a, we have a new faculty member here um, who's, we're, who's building a second lab, and that lab will have an overhead harness system, um, which allows people to move like freely through space. And it's really great because that opens up the possibility for us to move our VR work into you know, stroke and other populations that are more that are at higher risk of falls than we've been testing so far. Very exciting. And then, um, are there any other studies using the VR already tied to stroke? Or it sounds like you, you're waiting for your your new colleagues' lab to open up, where that might be a next piece. So there, yeah, there's there there is work. Um, in this area there are the if you start to go down the rabbit hole of the vr literature um there is what i might call so vr is probably vr based rehab is a subset of exergaming <laughs> and exergaming i would describe as any kind of training that requires sort of physical activity in the context of a game. A lot of times, um, people have done a lot of work with things like the Nintendo Wii, Xbox, um, I forget what it's called, the, um, wow, the Xbox camera system. And those studies- Connect is another one, right? Connect, right, 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 right. And um, sometimes those studies are sort of pitched as VR, depending on who you talk to, they may or may not agree with what constitutes VR. So as it pertains specifically to head-mounted displays, um, there's not a lot of work because those devices were in the past extremely expensive, like you know, 10 or $20,000. Um, there, there's much more work where people use what are called 2D displays, like a monitor, large screen, or a more of a cave-like system where there are projectors that um, project images on all the walls and you still feel like you're in that environment. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, there's a really, um, you know, there, there are commercial systems available, people have these in their labs. Um, so there's a wide range of work that's, that's been done in this area. What we're specifically trying to address, which we think is a major limitation is that most of these systems are treadmill based. So you only walk in you know, one direction. So being able to do turning and negotiate obstacles and use your hands is something that's really important um, from, for our work. Very good, very good. So James, um, we've gone through some very exciting things in, in your thriving lab. I can see why you need a, a good number of PhD students and postdocs in there as well as colleague collaborators. Um, if 
if there's uh, participants for any of your current research, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah, so they, um, they can go directly to our website. So it's LCL, so that stands for so Locomotive Control Lab, so lcl.usc.edu. Uh, on that page, they can find more information about some of our ongoing work. Um, more importantly, they can find contact information um, for me as well as our other, the other members of the, the team. And um, our clinical, USC's Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute, so our CTSI, they also have um, pages that describe some of the ongoing studies in my lab as well as other labs um, on our medical campus. Very good. And then I wanted to ask you about uh, being on the clinical side and having heard more about your long experience collaborating with PTs, both clinical and uh, research. When you're doing some of these studies that are, are moving forward uh, to intervention ready, um, probably proposals at this point, what are the things that as a clinician, physical therapist, you would hope that I would take away from these once, once I read them in the, in the published literature? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So are, do, are you, do you mean what I would like for clinicians to take away from future studies, current studies, or both? Yeah, and I guess I'm coming at this question from a, a, the broad perspective of uh, we all know that knowledge translation takes a very long period of time and sometimes it never quite gets over the gap. Um, you know, so 17 years from now, what you're doing in your lab, we might be doing in the clinic, I guess, is, is an optimistic statement. Um, so when you're doing these and, and having such great collaboration with uh, people that are in the clinical realm, I'm wondering if there are any thoughts you have about the carryover, or the implementation science aspect of this. Yeah, so I've given you know a reasonable amount of thought to this issue. So, you know, as again as not a clinician, um, my perspective is, you know, you as someone who treats, let's say, people post-stroke um, and works with them on their, you know, walking function, I would imagine that you read papers. And in some cases, there are sort of little nuggets that you can take from an individual paper or several papers, and you immediately use that to change your personal practice, right? Like you have the, the freedom to, to do that to, to a certain extent. Um, so what I would hope is that, you know, as our work develops, that it just provides some data points for people to say like, hey, um, maybe I should figure out, be able to try to determine a way to, you know, assess whether this new walking pattern or this change that I'm making someone's behavior is maybe is in some ways beneficial. Um, and that can happen at different levels. You could use heart rate as a proxy for, you know, energy costs. Um, you could use balance confidence as a proxy for stability. Um, you might use, maybe you can convince your clinic to use different types of low-cost devices. They're like backpack-worn metabolic cards that are, um, I wouldn't say they're inexpensive, but <laughs> the price is coming down. So, you know, maybe there's a case where you want to add some measurements to be more, um, 
more precise. Then, so I think that's the lowest hanging fruit. Um, with regard to, you know, changing clinical practice guidelines, that is something that I don't really feel comfortable <laughs> saying too much about. Um, that's that. Then I'm overstepping. So I, I think there's there's a lot that has to go on between where we are right now and you know larger scale clinical trials before this work can really inform um, practice guidelines. Okay. Well, that's a very um, appropriate and and helpful statement. So if I can say back to you, make sure I understood. Um, you're hoping as clinicians that, of course, we're reading the literature and considering our, our individual practice style um, from, from, from well-written and, and papers uh, that are based on good methodological uh, uh, studies. The other part that I definitely heard is you're hoping we're looking at energy costs with the interventions that we're doing. Or the, yeah, at least um, from my work, at least thinking about, um, so energy costs, is what we can measure with metabolic hearts. But really what we're talking about is, we can think about it as effort, physical effort. So being um, just aware of, well, you know, are people doing something that for them is less effortful? And is that kind of competing with my objective? <laughs> and if so, um, you know, how can I maybe make the thing that I want them to do the easier, um, less effortful option. Very good. And go, going back to the beginning of, of the series of, of good studies that you've shared, you talked about uh, motor learning. And mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there's a paradigm, because it's, it, it's something close to my heart, uh, both in teaching students now and in clinics I've worked in in the past, and then the balanced clinics that I, I lead here at Rosalind Franklin. Um, we tend to underdose and, and motor learning uh, and plasticity demands, uh, you know, a good enough dosage to, to, to get the outcome that you're actually aiming for, saying that mm -hmm. you're aiming for. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that as we come to a close? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really, um, a really big conversation. And I, so... I think one of the key challenges is bridging, um, you know, what people do, you know, in a clinical setting with what they do when they leave. So if you sort of, if we think about, uh, I'll take walking as an example, you know, the distribution of steps that you take when you're in therapy versus between <laughs> visits. Um, you really need to be practicing reinforcing things outside of the outside of the clinic, and that is something that I know a lot of, number of people are working on with different types of wearables or um, using apps that remind them or cue people when they leave. I think that is a really um, promising area of research and practice, tying together. Um, what people are doing when they're working with their uh, their therapist and giving some way for them to reinforce that behavior um, when they leave because that's that's how you I think that's the only the the most likely feasible way <laughs> yeah. um, to really move toward higher doses if we think about it as a dose 
Very good. Oh, that's that's a well said, and I, I really appreciate your your time and you sharing uh, the breadth of your research, which is a lot. You do a lot <laughs> in your lab, and it's very exciting. Um, with that, I'm gonna bring us to a close. And and again, James, thanks for your time and sharing your expertise. And my best to you and your continued good research in your lab. And I'll be looking for your coming. Uh, publication that I know you said you're currently revising. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send it your way as, uh, once we make our way through the, through the process. Yes. But yeah, thanks for your time and I'm um, happy to be able to share what we're doing here. All right, thanks James. All right. Okay, so I have...